People talk about coming from a variety of places of the world and not knowing who their people were. So how do you find that part of yourself that's authentic through your ancestry without really knowing all of the lineage or who you're looking for? This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversation at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning. And this week, we are coming together for part two of a three-part collaboration with Mystic Soul Project. You'll hear a little bit more about them in a minute, but first, I wanted to share with you uh, something very exciting that's coming up for our whole volunteer team that works on this podcast. We are heading together to Detroit, Michigan in mid-June for the Allied Media Conference. And for those who are not familiar with the AMC, it is in its 20th year, and it is such a critical place historically for healing justice practitioners to gather and to define the healing justice framework. For those of you who listened to episode 18, you heard Healing by Choice teach us about the tenets of setting up a healing justice practice space, and that is something that has happened very centrally at the Allied Media Conference. Um, And it's also a gathering of media makers. And uh, this podcast has been going for about six months now. We're still really new to the scene in terms of how media can play a powerful role in advancing healing justice and contributing to a culture shift in our movements. And so we're really excited to be bringing volunteers from all over the country um, who have been working on editing these episodes for you every single week since the beginning to come together and to offer some workshops at the AMC. So we'll be offering one called the Healing Justice Podcast Story Lab. So if you're going to be in Detroit, come and join us. We'll be um, collecting stories, sharing resilience practices, making visual and art mapping of our stories, and also recording your perspectives so that we can make a special feature podcast episode out of all the stories that we hear at the AMC. Um, And also, we're collaborating with our friends over at Tonic Podcast, uh, the Oxalis Collective from Washington, D.C., to together make up a delegation of healing justice-focused media makers. And so together with our friends at Tonic, we are fundraising for the costs of getting ourselves to Detroit. Our operations are super scrappy, uh, but as a crew, we are determined to both be there and build with folks in person and also share the goodness that happens there back out with you. That's the beauty of media making is that we'll make a podcast episode and you can hear people's perspectives. Uh, We'll be sharing on social media the whole time so you don't have to be left out. Uh, Our total expenses between our two teams to get people there and to do lodging and all of those material things is around $3,000. And so we are asking you from the goodness of your heart and the depth of your wallet, um, if you have a couple bucks that you can uh, throw in our fund so that we can get to Detroit and do the good work we need to do. Uh, You can find the fundraiser details at gofundme.com slash H-J-A-M-C. A good way to remember that is it stands for Healing Justice Allied Media Conference. And that direct link is also in the show notes. So it's gofundme.com slash H-J-A-M-C. 
Thank you so much for considering helping us get to Detroit. And if you're going to be at AMC, come hang out with us. Our workshop is at 11 a.m. on Friday. We would love to see you. Come and tell us your stories about what you've heard on the podcast that impacted you, how you've tried these practices on your own or in groups. That is like the funnest part of this whole thing. Um, So come and say, hey, we would love to see you. All right, y'all. So let's get to the good stuff and hang out with Mystic Soul. My friend Teresa Pimateus is here. Teresa was an integral part of the launching of this podcast as a collaborator since the beginning and is one of the three co-founders of Mystic Soul. Hey, Teresa, how you doing? I'm good. Glad to be back here again. I am so excited that you're back and that we are collaborating together to do a three-part podcast series that is driven by the Mystic Soul Project. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes. So the Mystic Soul Project began about two years ago uh, as a nonprofit organization. It was a vision long before that, but its intentionality is to center people of color, voices, teachings, wisdom, community conversations conversations at the intersection of spirituality, specifically contemplative spirituality, activism, and healing. Yes. So you can download and look for the first episode from this series with Mystic Soul by finding episode 26 to hear about people of color-centered spirituality. And the final episode in the three-part series is releasing this June, focused on contemplative activism and healing practice. You are finding yourself today in episode two, right in the middle of the sandwich. And so let's dive right into the conversation. Take it away, Teresa. We're going to be talking today about Indigenous reclamation and Indo-Latinx identity. I'm here with Ra Mendoza and Ana Jelsi Valesco Sanchez, and we're all going to be discussing our own experiences around that. So it seemed like a good place to start to talk about each of our own individual stories of how we kind of got into this conversation and our own lived experience. So I'm going to pass it along to Ana Jelsi to open us up. Okay, so how how I got into to even discussing decolonization. Um, so I uh, was born in Caracas, Venezuela. Um, I've been in the States most of my life. Um, so as far as uh, assimilating or, or kind of uh, adapting a, um, a Western narrative um, that goes without saying for, for most of my formation. I didn't really begin exploring what decolonization means or even what it means to be into Latinx, to have an identity beyond Latina uh, or even Hispanic until I was an adult. Um, decolonization itself wasn't even really a thought for me until about four years ago and hasn't really become a, like a concentrated effort or, or a thing of importance until about two years ago. Um, but it's been a really in some ways a really rapid process and in some ways a really slow process of uh, just trying to figure out who I am outside of this Western white lens and, and who my ancestors are and what I have to, to glean from them about how I live my life. Uh, so I've been exploring that. This is Ra. <laughs> um, and this process of decolonization of my spirituality or just like even thinking about what that word means for me um, as a third generation Mexican woman started at like almost 
<clears throat> almost uh, two years ago and happened as I just began to recognize that the spaces I was in and um, at the same time pay attention to my body and realize that what I was hearing about how I, supposed, how I was supposed to take care of myself um, in my justice work or in my faith work mm. uh, world and life and process like just wasn't working um and that led me to ask some questions a lot of why questions like why wasn't this working and why was i continually finding myself longing for something something more um and actually it's funny i bought this i bought this cookbook actually my friend jen bought me this cookbook called uh my gosh i'm forgetting what it's called um but it's all about like decolonizing your your uh your food, like what you mm. eat. And, and it clicked for me. I was like, wait a second. If I can do that with like what I eat and what I put into my body, like this applies to other areas of my life. Um, and that led me on a process of, <clears throat> of beginning to, uh, to do that and to, um, and at the same time to, to want to um, work towards reclaiming something that I've been separated from, um, which is an indigenous story and history that um, I'm still, still um, beginning to, to find. So this is Teresa again. My own story for me has always felt really complex. I was born in Bogota, Colombia, um, and then adopted at four months of age to a white family, British um, and white American parents. And so for me, um, in many ways, you know, in the in the present state of my life in the last few years, reclaiming has also been claiming. So it's also been about how do I find identity that I have to discover myself. And uh, what has been interesting for me in this process is that I thought it was a uniquely um, adoptee experience to be seeking the thing that you didn't know what mm -hmm. it is or how to find it. And what I realized as I started to do more exploration and asking more questions, not just for myself, but of other people, of what, what their process and their journey of identity looked like, I realized that for, um, for people of color across the board that there is the same struggle that felt that felt very isolated for me. And as I began asking those questions more vocally out loud for myself and with other people, I realized that there was this wider community of people struggling to do the same thing. Um, and so it's it's felt like a really interesting journey to feel more um, in connection with others, actually, the deeper that I move into my own process of seeking and trying to understand um, and that reclamation being being across the board. So we'll talk a little later more in depth about the Indo-Latinx identity, but, but for me, it's been about both. So how do I claim and also reclaim uh, both what Latinx means for me and then also what does indigeneity mean for me? Um, and as an adoptee, what is that indigeneity, right? Mm -hmm. Because, um, and, and this is true for many people, you know, people talk about um, coming from a variety of places of the world and not knowing who their people were, right? So how do you find that part of yourself that's authentic through your ancestry without really knowing all of the lineage of how to find that or, or who you're looking for. Um, so for me, that's, those have been some of the beginning questions um, that I've been struggling with increasingly and again has been, has been transformative, not just 
that it's been my journey. And this is maybe also part of Indigenous Reclamation, but it's no longer like the thing I have to carry alone, like an individualistic person, but like even shoving off that Western idea that it's a solo journey, that it's become more communal the more that I've embraced it. And to me, that's a, you know, that's decolonizing or or moving away from those old structures that like our spiritual journeys are Mm -hmm. just ours and they're not shared in, in community. Yeah, right. So if we can shift a little or move forward a little into, for many people, I think, depending on who's listening, the idea of indigenous reclamation may be terms that they've heard before, but not really understood what they mean, or maybe they've never heard before at all. Or even for those people that are seeking something that looks like that, trying to figure out what does that actually mean. So I thought maybe we could take a few moments and talk about, for each of us, what do those terms actually mean when they go together, indigenous reclamation so whoever wants to kind of jump in yeah so I get, I get this question a lot when people are trying to um you know we're using even when we're when we say decolonization we're using a very academic term uh and so the first question I get is like, well, what does that what does that mean and my little like elevator pitch is decolonization is about restoration and reclamation on a personal and on a collective level. Um, and they're like, well, what does that mean? So, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but what I'm saying with that is it's not just about casting off or unlearning things, but about rediscovering things, uh, reframing how we look at things, a lot of re re of everything. Um, for me, it is has been a lot about figuring out how I see myself and who I am when I'm moving through relationships and moving through the world and how I, how I process how others see, see me, um, doing all of that in a way that is, that is mine and that, um, that isn't determined for me by like the dominant culture or white culture or American European culture. Um, like all of that is a, is a part of, of decolonization for me. Um, it's unlearning things that have been, whether I was conscious of them or not, have been unhealthy for me. Um, so like Ra talking about diet is one, I'm not great at that. I really enjoy all the things. Um, <laughs> it's just interesting. It is. Um, but diet is a big one for some people. Um, for me, it's identity and my ideas of beauty, of of like we've had these conversations before about like how I look at time and uh, how I look at uh, worship and, and spirituality, uh, how I look at justice and what justice in its fulfillment looks like. Because honestly, a lot of acts and, and works of justice um, start from a place of um, colonization happened, what was done to Native and Indigenous people was done. There's nothing we can do about that. So how do we seek justice for everyone and everything else living in that, like in a world where that is our truth? As opposed to justice begins with how do we restore what was um, what was done and is being done to Native and Indigenous people um, and is as a part of how we pursue all justice. And so it's even reframing how I look at justice. But yeah, it's, it's restoration and reclamation um, as, a part of the, as a part of a body, not just for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, when you said restoration, something, something really uh, clicked in my head. I think um, for me, this, uh, this process of reclamation, indigenous reclamation, like I think I connect to that with a little bit of I'm still I'm definitely learning what that looks like for me and what that means for me where I'm at now um, 
the the process of just knowing who I am, mm-hmm. where my family comes from in Mexico, yeah. um, the the different people groups that make up who I am, the histories there, um, uh, who my you know who different family members were and what their um, their journey was to um, to the states, like like all of that to me is is part of this reclamation process, and and as I've been doing that slowly, there's been an uh, an element of healing that's mm-hmm. come with that, um, and so when I think about when I think about what this means for me, like as I move forward, I think this this healing component and this restoring component, like are are uh, kind of the guides. Like, how do I feel more connected to who I am in my body, um, in the way that I in the way that I think and in the way that I move, and and like the tension that I feel um, as someone who's third generation, as someone who's trying to con- be connected to their history and story, but also is really disconnected from that. Like, how does that tension begin to minimize? And so it's it's like a really internal, it's really personal, um, and it's um, it's emotional too. And so I'm realizing that 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 process flows all on its own and at times is is requiring more or less depending on how much I can I don't how much I'm able to give how much of the emotional energy I'm able to give to them mm. um, thank you both for unpacking that I think where you opened from on a is important that that connection to decolonization as inherently linked to reclamation that that to re- what what needs to be reclaimed also requires the process of decolonizing mm-hmm. what exists. You know these paradigms. For me, I know, um, you know, as we've been working on the Mystic Soul Project and the conference, so much for me has been realizing even as we're de- we're trying to deconstruct things and decolonize, just like you said, time, right? Mm -hmm. Decolonizing time made me realize how connected I am and how bound I am to structures of time that are Western and that are constructed by whiteness and colonization. You know, that we have to finish at this time or um, the speaker only gets four minutes because (laughs) we don't have enough time, right? And I, or we're at a retreat or we're at a programming and it's like this next thing has to happen. I found myself as I tried to, to pull away from that feeling internal struggles you know as I'm trying to do it like like angst this inner angst Mm. and this process of a massive anxiety about not being on time made me realize how bound my life had been to these constructs of time and there's been something really powerful in releasing these ideas and letting there be space for what happens when I let go what happens and the thing is is when I've let go of time lately as a practice amazing things have happened, yeah. right? Like deeper relational things yes. have happened. Deeper communal things are possible. Mm-hmm. Greater le- levels of authenticity because people feel presenced and like as if you are present with them in a mm-hmm. different way and they feel the presence of everyone in space with them. Mm-hmm. So then I also think about the construct of time and space, how they function together and how community, like how they're all interconnected, which when when I think about it, indigeneity and going kind of uh, deconstructing this colonized separatist individualized life model that we've set up it makes sense in many ways that as some of those parts are allowed to fall away and die away not entirely right so we have we still live in a world where time is a construct but where I can take it out you know places where I can allow myself to take it out um, that things that are authentic strengths of of tribal and indigenous lineage shows up 
stronger. Yeah. So the ability for communality, the ability for just that sort of um, energetic space where people can feel more authentic with each other, almost those things that are intangible, you know, they're not unquantifiable right. by Western mm -hmm. standards, actually have time and space to show up. Mm -hmm. And what that makes me think of, you know, sort of moving from this idea of what is reclamation, also what is, what does indigeneity mean? I think mm -hmm. we were talking the other day about this idea that um, even in Latinx communities, um, definitely outside of, when you say Indo-Latinx, people say, well, I'm, you know, we aren't Latinx or they aren't, La I mean, they right. aren't indigenous right. because they're Latinx. And those two things are have been separated. And in mm -hmm. many ways, I see that as a separation also of colonization. Like you have this identity, you no longer have that identity. Right. It's very binary and also as an erasure of indigeneity. Um, so if you guys want to speak into what Indo-Latinx means or mm -hmm. means for you in your life and how that's kind of shown up or, or evolved in sure. this in identity. Sure. Um, well, I think there's... Again, it's like there's a lot of terminology um, in there that's that's has purpose and lang and language. You know, I'm always saying language matters, um, but can also be kind of a a, a barrier to pe for people. So just to break down before I even say like what it means for me personally, but getting people to concepts like what is race and what is ethnicity versus what is culture and what is nationality. You know, a lot of people you hear you hear Latinx. Well, even Latinx. When we say that, we're saying some a term that's gender neutral. You know, some folks listening might be much more familiar with Latina or Latina, but we're just talking about folks who are um, from or descendants of, of Latin American countries. But for La to be Latinx, you can be, you know, uh, native, you can be black, you can be white, um, you can be mixed race. Like, it's, 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 not, it's not a race identifier. Um, and I think that's important to clarify for people because that's one of the barriers mm -hmm. to them understanding what we're talking about. Um, and then this idea of indigenous, when, once, once you've clarified that for people, being able to say, well, yes, I am Latinx, I am Latina, um, and within that, uh, I am indigenous um, and or this, these other, many other things. And so for me, when I say I'm Indo-Latinx, I'm saying, yes, I'm, I'm Latina, I'm from Venezuela, I'm proud of that, um, but I'm also um, a woman of indigenous um, heritage who is trying to, to reconnect to that. Um, which is incredibly hard if, as someone living in, in a diaspora or living outside of the country of, that she's from. Um, but I'm trying. And, and, and one of the ways I do that is acknowledging that language matters and that I want a term as imperfect as it is because Latina or Latino or Latinx are still colonized terms. Um, I want a term that encapsulates a little bit more of who I am and honors my indigenous heritage. And so I'm not... I'm not just indigenous and I'm not just Latinx and I'm not just Venezuelan. Indo-Latinx gives me um, some wider parameters to identify with. That was a lot, but that's kind of <laughs> why I use that term. <laughs> yeah, so I actually don't use that term for myself um, because I think it is really important to acknowledge like what that means and language and the connections to our stories and what we know of our stories. And like I was saying before, like, I don't know. Mm. I don't, I don't know enough um, at this point to feel like I can, I can use a term like Indo-Latinx. I think um, for me, it's been really important to name. Um, I'm third generation uh, Mexican. Like that, that feels like really good to me. That feels really clear to, 
uh, to making me feel like I have space to be in that, uh, oftentimes I feel like this like weird in between space of, of culture, holding on to culture and, and also like spending a lot of my life, um, letting it go. Mm. Um, not because I necessarily wanted to, but because I thought I had to. Um, and so that's, that's how I choose to identify myself, um, right now. Yeah, I think, um, so I do identify as Indo-Latinx. And for me, um, the Indo, the indigenous part has been really important for me because I didn't grow up in, a, um, in any Latinx context, mm. you know? So growing up in a white context, I never learned how to be Latina. Mm. Um, and so that was as foreign to me as anything else. And so trying to hold on to that felt very distant, especially because um, the communities around me that were Latinx were very, um, very close to each other, but I was always felt sort of on the outside. And um, the spaces and places for whatever reason that I felt really embraced by were indigenous spaces. That whenever I was in indigenous communities, primarily Native American communities in the U.S., but not exclusively. This happened in Laos, this happened in Thailand, this happened in other places. Um, Indigenous communities would not only respond to me uh, really well, but they would welcome me as one of their own. They would know that I was Indigenous and they would name it. Mm -hmm. And that was really powerful for me, not not knowing where I came from, right? So also this Indigenous identity that also in its its own way, there's individualism to each of those own communities and uniqueness and beauty but this connection to this wider context of tribalism of of indigeneity was so powerful for me because I'd never been acknowledged as the same or as Mm. one of you know in a community in that way so that for me the power of holding that identity has been because it has been such a huge part of my story of learning myself and learning that I am part of a wider community Um, and part of the, the the struggle of that as well is you know living outside of the space where the where, where my origin indigenous right. community comes from Colombia and trying to even research that at a distance which so I've started hard. to do yeah there's thousands of yeah. tribes it's even so within hard. the areas around Bogota yeah you know so um so that's it but that's also been interesting you know the idea of um there's there's this whole concept of autoethnography that I've been looking into which is like is is studying the stories of where you came from and being able to reclaim them and integrate them into who you are and for me that's been powerful because some of the literature I've been reading on that has been a lot about people doing like just research essentially to find their peoples Um, and so that process while overwhelming because there's so many tribes has also been really powerful because I'm learning about the different indigenous cultures specific to Colombia and what that looks like for me to even imagine um, myself as part of a distinct community as well as the sort of larger indigeneity. Right. Um, So I'm wondering, we sit in a Western world. Um, The three of us sit at least uh, oftentimes inside of Christian spaces. Mm. Um, There's a lot of tension in holding and reclaiming indigeneity and and tribal lineage inside of a Christian space. (laughs) And there's a lot of stigmatization of that process, which we can talk also about how that's connected with whiteness, with privilege, Mm -hmm. with colonization. But I'm wondering if you want to unpack that however you want a little bit and also talk about how that struggle has been for you to, you know, for each of you to navigate that space. Sure. Yeah. This might come out in little spurts. (laughs) It's been a lot. 
I find this is on a Chelsea. I um I find myself weirdly in this like paradox of like open and vulnerable with my process because I live a very public life just as a as a result of my job and that public life is in very Christian spaces, evangelical spaces. Um so I have I have this paradox of like very open with the, with my decolonization process and decolonizing my faith and yet at the same time like I'm very protective of it and I'm very um wary and so I'll, some parts I'll share like very you know freely with people um and then I realize like there's certain things where I'm like oh, I don't know if I can say that in this crowd or I don't know I'll I'll use a different word because uh I'm a pro I mean I'm a product of white you know, evangelical Christianity in America. And I know what words are warning, red flags are gonna go off for Christians and, and they're gonna be like, oh, that's, you know, she's questioning her faith or that sounds, you know, depending on, who, depending on your audience, like, oh, that sounds like, like scripture speaks against, you know, uh, certain practice or, you know, that sounds like idolatry or that, like there's so many accusations that, that can be made or, or even if they're not accusations, questions that can be raised that I don't really feel like warrant an answer from me or, or that I'm comfortable answering. And so I'm very careful with, with what I share with people. Um, I, I think one of the big things that has been a, a, a part of the process for me has been how I look at what intimacy with the creator looks like for me has changed drastically even in the last year um so that's a big one and then um so intimacy with the creator and then sin my understanding of sin my and what i mean by that is like teresa touched on this a little earlier about what community looks like in in indigenous space and how you know individuality is such a western concept um and sin and the way we look at sin in in the western church and in white evangelical church is such an individual concept. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that has no place or, or no, like isn't warranted at all, um, but it doesn't carry as much weight for me as it used to, if that makes sense, because everything is, it is a very natural thing as in indigenous, like in indigenous spaces to look at everything as like, yes, this might be about me, but what is it, it's about me in re relationship to others. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about me in relationship to the earth. It's about me in relationship to the creator. Um, as opposed, to, there's really never a scenario where it's just about me, um, which kind of goes, flies in the face of like personal sin. <laughs> and, uh, um, and so that has been a very interesting process that I'm not done with. So I'm, I'm saying this, not having this be like a, being a fully fleshed out thought. I might like listen to this a year from now and be like, oh, I have very new ideas about that. But right now, um, the idea of personal sin and of there being any such thing as sin outside of who we are in relationship to others um, is something I'm definitely exploring. Mm. So as I've uh, been doing this like, uh, decolonizing myself from Christianity, <laughs> spirituality kind of thing. Um, my, I feel like my understanding of God, the creator, spirit, mm -hmm. divine, like, uh, is so alive. Um, and it makes me, mm -hmm. it just makes me think about the difference between substance and form. Like, I think 
um, the decolonization process for me um, away from white Eurocentric um, forms of Christianity um, have helped me get to the root of the substance um, of what I connect to. Mm-hmm. Um, has helped me kind of, kind of uh, separate the two and and understand too that that maybe the substance can take on many different forms mm. and and I can let go of this idea um, that there's one and this this Uh-oh. feels a Uh-oh. little <laughs> danger zone but, <laughs> but you know I mean there there is fear attached to to holding on to things tightly mm. and I think that for me the process of deconstructing the structure of my Christianity, really of my spirituality has led me to realize like, what am I afraid of when I let go of certain things and why? And who told me that I should be afraid of that? Mm. And so it's this process of questions. And when I really answer them and let myself go there, um, again, it comes back to this like feeling more connected to myself and also to, to other people who can see me and let me be okay with being right where I am and not need to, needing to be anything else or anything more. Um, and this process has been guided by a few people who have helped me do that, um, who, have, who have been in this process of deconstruction themselves, um, who can, yeah, I mean, it's, who can offer some support in that, like, oh, I don't know if I can go there. I don't know <laughs> if I can say that. And, and like Anna Chelsea said, like, I don't, I mean, I'm saying it very broadly here to whoever else is listening, but um, yeah, that's not something that I uh, I um, necessarily talk about a whole lot, but I think it's really true, and I think it's really real, and I think that it's uh, it's natural when you start to 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 shake things up and take things apart. Um, it's natural to, I think, for me in this process to to begin to ask questions like that. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, in some ways, you know, seeing the framework of evangelicalism mm-hmm. and how um, rigid it can be around certain dogma, um, I think there was, there's a fluidity to the Catholicism I was raised in that looks different, you know? So, um, I, I really, I feel so much empathy for the process of having not just to divest from a certain nature of white evangelicalism for people, but also having to come up against or or come in um, come in contrast to other people's beliefs that still sit inside that that mm-hmm. structure. Um, something for me that has been a great gift has been the. Christian contemplative path and honestly finding my way to the Christian contemplative path via yoga and Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So this sort of ability to um, have been exposed to in my 20s, the diversity of contemplative lineages. Mm -hmm. So this sort of understanding that there's a there's a familial connection between the um, the spiritual path at the deepest part of ourselves that connects us with God and the universe um, that is not constructed by the rules and the laws and, and the dogma, that, that that can be valuable, you know, um, but that the core of what holds us together is this deep relationality with God. And, and, and my study inside and my practice inside of Christian contemplation over the last 10 plus years, maybe 15 years now, um, has helped me to hold that space inside myself I'm in the best of times, right? Like I lose 
tether to that often as well, but um, just this ability to be aware that divinity shows up in everything, right? Yes. So at its best, the contemplative path um, inside Christianity even teaches you much of what indigenous practices teaches you, you know, and which is really root, the root spiritual traditions that we all come from are right. indigenous, is that everything is connected. We are rooted to the earth. Mm -hmm. The earth and, mm -hmm. and nature is connected to every one of us in right. relationship, and we are connected to each other in relationship. Right. Nothing is done independent of, of everything and everyone around you. Right. Yeah. So at its best, um, the contemplative path does that. And so that to me has been actually a helpful continuum to continue with still having to deconstruct that you know that still has its, pro its mm -hmm. problematic christian contemplative lineage is problematic as it stands today because it's still very mm -hmm. white framework white conceptualization and can be um, very appropriative in some spaces right right <laughs> well that's exactly it right yeah. so you just throw in indigenous you know native american ritual right. and and like certain kinds of drumming all of a sudden in a contemplative space and yep. now you're appropriating other traditions practices <laughs> inside a space so yes we're all one yes. and we're Respect for mm -hmm. each right. each individual, you know, history and lineage is critically important, and sometimes that gets lost yes. in a certain kind of oneness that I think comes out of a culture of dominance, which mm -hmm. is oneness also means we take right, right into our oneness right. that which not necessarily authentic to our own lineage, mm -hmm. um, and and that's a that's a delicate balance anyway, right? Yeah. How do we? And I think that's also part of the delicate balance for me, and I think in general for how do we reclaim indigeneity and also sit inside of some kind of Western yeah. um, religiosity or identity, it, that's a delicate, how do you hold mm. the tension between those spaces and, and not, not um, find yourself either being appropriative or right. creating space that's inauthentic or whatever it is. Right. Um, I think it requires an ethic and an integrity that potentially is being built in this moment, you know, mm -hmm. that, that as we figure it out and as we move along. So, Ra had spoken earlier about decolonizing food and mm. cooking. So I'm wondering, moving from this sort of larger, the theoretical, what is it, you know, what does it look like for us? Mm -hmm. How practically are you doing this process in your life? So what is it, what are the, what are the practices? Or what are the rhythms of life? Mm. What are the things that you're integrating that you feel like is engaging in a real life way with that process of reclamation? Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so a couple of things just come to mind. I just um, moved in my apartment. I moved bedrooms, and I put up pictures of my grandparents at the front of my wall. Um, and I've just noticed um, lately that images have become really, really important. Images that connect me to my family or to um, my culture. Um, I have them everywhere. I have like little altars everywhere. Can candles with images, uh, paintings. Yeah, so that's something that has become more of a practice and like li literally like in every room, in my car, um, at, at work, um, just to help me like focus and then like to center me back in. Um, also, I'm in school and so I've kind of like, I made this decision that I wanna read theologies that uh, that connect to my experience. Um, so I spent the semester diving into uh, Mujerista theology and like tore that up. Um, <laughs> and like, le I'm letting it influence my work. Mm. Um, 
because where I work, we're talking all about solidarity and mutuality. Um, and so I'm letting this theology influence that. Um, choosing to read um, other uh, like womanist theologies and queer theologies and just making making shifts into the voices that are speaking into yes. the religious spaces that I exist in and also like the identities that I hold. So that's those are those are a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, yeah, I absolutely I share that. Um, I am a for for someone who, you know, dropped out of college and really doesn't have a, like a lot of higher education um, like formal training, I read voraciously. So I, I, I've joked with Teresa and others that I steal their their seminary reading lists. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's how I uh, uh, don't have to pay for seminary and yet I get all the fun. And so, um, <laughs> so I, but I have just kind of like on my own uh, um, and, and with others who are, who are doing this outside of a formal setting and, and reading a lot of what Ra is talking about, a lot of um, similar um, theological works and, and letting that shape how I look at my faith and shape how I discuss it and how I practice it and the language I use to describe it. Um, so reading, just reading and learning from others has been very big for me. Um, it's sort of when people, when I talk to people about racial justice, a lot of times I, a question I get from, from white allies is like, well, what can I do? They're very like action oriented. What can I do? What is my, what do I, I, I want to be involved. How do I get involved? Um, and my answer is usually like, well, don't do anything. Um, and maybe just go read mm -hmm. and just, <laughs> just go, um, go and immerse yourself, uh, in, in the wisdom of the people who have put, already put in a lot of work um, to give you a framework for this. And so I'm trying to take my own advice and, and do that in how I approach um, decolonizing, decolonizing my own life and my own identity. So reading is a big one. Um, I, I love what you said about altars because I, I don't know if I have quite as many as you do, but um, it's a, it's no, like now I want to have one in every room. I'm like, oh, I just have my, I only have three rooms. <laughs> I only, it's not that big. <laughs> now I'm like, I only have my one altar. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I have one too, and it's, it's become really precious to me. Um, one, because I'm very action oriented, I'm very task oriented and success oriented. Um, and having a space that I can go to in my home that um, where all I'm supposed to do is just just sit at it and just um, let myself be the very, very bad contemplative that I am and try um, to, to see myself outside of action and just be um, in a place of intimacy. And so I have a lot of little things on mine that help me to do that. And so I have some books because I, because like I said, you learn from those who, who understand it better than you do. I have, you know, a little wooden cross from a friend from Mexico. I have, um, I have a stone that I took, um, from, uh, when I visited the Pulse Memorial, someone had left a stone with Venezuela written on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and to be in that space where so many, um, queer Latinas people had lost, lost their lives and to see this stone that made me think about people who are losing their lives and livelihood in my own country. The connection I felt to that, um, so I, I pocketed it and, and I took it home. <laughs> it sounds horrible. <laughs> but I took it home and I put it on my altar. Um, so I have things that have very important meaning for me and that, that has been helpful in my process. And the same thing in my home, I have, I have art is very important for me. The visual things are very important for me. So I have art around the place. Um, 
where I put said where I invest my money has become important mm-hmm. for me. So putting my money back into supporting uh, particularly Latinx people, not just people of color, but supporting other Latinx and Indo Latinx people into companies that have make are making clothing or jewelry or are supporting movements that that work for indigenous um, sovereignty and rights. Like that's been important to me. Um, so my finances has been something I'm trying to decolonize in terms of like what I value and 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 how I show how how I prove my how much I value it by by where I invest. I'm rambling, but like these, there's like the little ways that I'm trying to. It's all really hard to do, honestly, from a distance. I can't, I can't show up at a a meeting from the tribes that my ancestors are from, mm-hmm. and just immerse myself in it. And so I have to do it all from a distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Um, so a question that I keep in my mind is. Uh, like when I'm thinking about this word decolonize, which can mean a, a lot of things to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like really, for me, um, I think about power or control. Like, like what is the and what area of my life, you know, am I focusing on? Like, who who's the dominant? What's the dominant voice? What's the dominant like? Uh, or who who's had power in shaping this and how it looks. And I think for me, that's just really helpful just to kind of ask all the time, like, and just to become aware um, um, and to do that kind of self-educating of like, yeah, doing that self-educating and then, and then going from there and being like, oh, okay, so how do I, what do I, what do I want to do with that? Like, mm-hmm. like you were talking about with your money, like, you know, thinking like, we have the power and and kind of giving myself my own agency to be like, do I want to participate in this or do I want to to do something else? Which, and for me, in answering that is part of the decol, like the decolonizing myself. Like I have the ability to change how I show up and how I participate in whatever area this is. Um, and, and that's empowering yeah. and that feels really good. Like it just feels really good even just to begin to ask it whether or not how far I go with that, like, Time will tell, and I'll like choose that. But I think knowing how to start that process in these areas of my life has been really um, asking that question has been really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a, the processes and the practices are things that I'm just beginning to learn. How do I integrate in this? How do I integrate in decolonizing and reclamation? How do they work side by side? And I talked before about time and space, and that has been really big for me because mm-hmm. that is, they're really vague, but then you bring them into practical moments. And, and it's been really good for me to yeah. have to break things like that down for myself. So where can I, where can I let go of my hold on time? You know, mm-hmm. like what spaces can I do that in? Right. How is it feeling for me on the inside uh, when that happens? How do I deal with the discomfort? How do I also face then how colonized I am in my mm-hmm. internal processes when I'm facing that discomfort because yep. then it makes me own how entrenched that is yep um, and then seeing how to do it differently right like it also a little bit goes to what you're saying Ra, about power right like so uh, dominant structures power structures that have been built on very colonized this colonized methodology how are the little ways that I can subvert that in my life by deconstructing them where I have capacity to do that mm-hmm. um, and and that's empowering for me and it, it and it also 
makes myself it makes me feel connected to a deeper ancestry yeah. because it's so hard right i can't just find my tribe and go to like a local mm-hmm. gathering right. right for practices but what are the ways that i can actually connect with um connect with the practices that are ancient, right? Mm-hmm. How do I find that indigeneity and reclaim it in this moment, even if it's not, it doesn't have a specificity of a tribe, right. but it's connected to this sort of identity of, mm-hmm. of indigenous being. Right. Um, and, and also what you both said, alter space and reading lists are actually, <laughs> it's interesting to find where there's like synchronicity yeah. where people, mm-hmm. in people's journeys because- Steps that everybody seems yeah, to need to take. Exactly. But <laughs> yeah. like those, it's interesting those two, you know, cause one yeah. is very intellectual, right? Mm-hmm. And, and restructuring like our thought process. What am I reading has been really important, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've just spent like, I'm sure all of us, 99.9% of my entire life having to, or but just by nature of not thinking about it, reading dominantly white voices. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do I re- Restructure my thinking and process to ab- start absorbing um, that which comes from those ancestral lines and lineages, right. those that are my own and that are others, so that I'm hearing different ways of being that actually I can absorb in. Um, and then, you know, that's very intellectual centered and then altar space for me is so visceral right Mm -hmm. it's like it's sensorial because it's about you know what candles what's what scents um what visual you know who am i what am i seeing you know art has been for me art like is the altar in my whole lived in living space Mm -hmm. you know that it's like this the altar that as i move around my space i feel the presence of faces and Mm -hmm. images and um it's so important to me i have my um teresa of avila painting that i got from the cathedral out when i walked the camino and then went to avila afterwards that's so important to me as my patron saint my namesake and then i have my fridas everywhere (sighs) frida Kahlo's, which is interesting because i've loved her for a long time um and then i saw her get appropriated (laughs) she's on like lunchboxes you know i'm just like you don't even know who she is You don't even know her story. So that's been oh. a little difficult. But, um, <laughs> but my Frida's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, and just colors and vibrancy and sense yes. and just this immersion that, again, feels like the embodiment, right? Like, so um, Western everything, Western religiosity, Western culture is so head-driven mm-hmm. um, and so un- disembodied. And so reconnecting to those things that bring vibrancy and color and, and sensory experience yeah. just in and of itself, but then a- along with something like altar space that's ritual has been really powerful for me to kind of um, remember where I came from in this, again, amorphous mm-hmm. way that doesn't yeah. always have a specific place, tribe, um, set of people that I can look back to, but I'm, but it still makes me feel deeply, deeply connected. Yeah. Um, so we're just about at the end of our time. I want to see if anybody had any kind of closing thoughts or reflections for um, either other people on this journey or or those listening that are just trying to learn and understand or just a final thought period yeah. of any kind. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um in terms of what this process looks like, and you touched on something uh, a little while ago, Teresa, and I um, have been thinking about, which is just how do I ensure while I'm going through this process and while it is so necessary and so life-giving um, that I don't engage in my own forms of appropriation and mm. that I don't um, 
that my decolonization and reclamation do not become performative. Um, because I think that that is a very easy, like danger or mistake to give into. Um, one of the most obvious ways of doing that is that I am in relationship and I realize that this is, there's a luxury to this and there's a privilege in even saying this, but that I'm in relationship with other native people, that I'm in relationship with native folks from living in the U.S. and not in the U.S., from people from different tribes, people who were, you know, raised on reservation and people who were raised in a city like me, like, um, but just making sure that I, I am true to that in, indigenous uh, value and priority that everything we do is in relationship. And that includes my decolonization process, that it's done in relationship with others. And I'm not doing it in a silo. Um, that it's not just about, you know, buying a half a dozen shirts that say native pride on them or about braid, suddenly, you know, braiding my hair a lot or like like these very like things that aren't inherently wrong, but can like in of themselves, if it's, if it's all your process is about, are definitely performative. Um, and so trying to figure out ways to avoid that. And I have found that it's through like honoring people who have done this work before me and continue to do it and know more about it. It's about being in relationship with others. And I think like all things that if they're doing, being done right and um, and with the right intention, that there's there's a painful aspect to it and there's things that are lost in the process and things that have to let, be let go of in the process. And I would say that if you are going through your own decolonization process, and hopefully you are, because I think it's beneficial to everyone, um, that those there probably needs to be some component like that for you. Um, if it always feels really good, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> um, so um, that's that has been important to me, and I just wanted to name that for others. It's like indigeneity like looks very different for each of us, and our ability to connect to it might look different. But we should be doing it in relationship with one another, um, and that, that that pain usually means some form of growth. And so I would welcome it and embrace it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I remember, Teresa, this is really funny. I don't think I've told you this story, but I remember sitting outside my house and I was, I also had a really deep connection to the, um, to, uh, the Christian contemplative like tradition and path. And, um, but I was like, it, everyone's white and I can't, this, <laughs> this has got to change. Everything's got to change. And I had come to this moment, this place where I was like, who else? Who else is are is is thinking this way? Like who? Is, surely somebody has to. And I, and I, I was on Facebook, and a friend connected me to Teresa because we were both moving to Chicago. And I was like, well, Teresa's brown, and she's—I <laughs> mean, she's also a contemplative. I wonder what she thinks about this. So, and I literally sat there, and I and I thought about how am I going to ask this question because I feel like such a baby. Like, uh, uh, do you wonder about like? Um, uh, if there's, you know, a difference between white people and people of color doing con contemplation work and like, what, is, what do you think about that? And um, because I do and I don't know. Uh, and then I just sent the message and then I was greeted with like, oh, yeah, I've been asking that question for a really long time. And it was in that moment where I realized like. I thought I was the only one. Yeah. Like I thought I was alone. And that's the power of whiteness is yeah. it makes you feel like you're the only one and it puts us all in these little silos and separates us all. And mm. um, decolonizing is removing those barriers yes. and, um, and taking back a little bit of our humanity to be like, I don't know, but I feel like something's 
not working here and what do you think and and learning from each other um and in that process i have been um empowered to trust myself which is something that i think we're always learning how to do more and more and for me that has been so connected to the decolonizing process is learning to trust myself and trust my body and trust my voice um and and know that it's messy and hard and painful and i've lost things but I've gained so, so much at the same time. Um, so uh, ask the question. If you feel like a little, like a little baby bird too, like um, maybe you are and maybe you're not, but someone else um, is also asking the question. Lots of people are asking the questions yeah. and there's community to, to let those questions sit and maybe we don't even answer them. Yeah. That's the other thing is yeah. that like, we ask these questions without having to answer them. Mm-hmm. Like the the answer is is in the connection um, that we're both yearning for something, yes. that we're all looking for something, um, and we find it in each other um, in that in that space. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. I mean, you guys, you both made such really good points. Um, I, I, I love the, you know, if it's not uncomfortable, then you're not doing it right. I think that's a universal, yeah. like, life lesson. <laughs> we're talking about justice. We're talking about faith. We're talking about decolonization. Um, it's, you know, there's going to be pain that we have to move through. And I think that's different than the, the sort of what I call, like, religious masochism mm-hmm. of, like, faith should hurt or, right. you know, that, that actually mm. calls you into pain but in a way that's not healthy for you. Yeah, not that. Not that. <laughs> yeah, but, I, but that's why the only reason I make that point yeah. is because so many people have been enculturated yes. through Christianity, yes. oftentimes through Western religion, that the pain is supposed to come in a way that is, like, actually overtly and long-term harmful yeah. for you. Um, but th- this is a different kind of pain. This yeah. is a spiritual process of, of um, let, letting something die away so that something new yes. can be born out of it. And, and this idea that, you know, like what you were saying, Ra, about this, the communal nature of just being with each other to ask the questions. And to me, at its core, that's the root of the mystic path. Mm-hmm. That's the root of, of the re- reclamation of indigeneity is mm-hmm. the, the ability to sit in unknowing, right? We, the Western culture is absolutist. There must be an answer to everything. And the depth of spirituality at its core, what indigeneity holds so well is ambiguity, mm-hmm. space where we can ask questions that may never have answers. Yeah. Or that like you were saying before on a jealousy, unpacking a thing like, you know, sin, and the answer might look different later. Yeah. And the ability to have that be ambiguous and say, this is how I think about this now. And I might think something different later. How much in religion people have said, no, this is what you think, and you will think this forever. And 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 how that's that's not a healthy process, (laughs) right? It's not a healthy spiritual journey to have the same answer today that I'd have in 30 years to anything, for the most part, is kind of absurd. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think at its root, like, that's what for me, that's what it opens up is this ability to, un, you know, the unknowing, you know, in in a Christian mystic, there's, um, 
history, there's this book called The Cloud of Unknowing. And I love just that word unknowing, right? Because it's yeah. the antithesis. It takes turns everything on its head that we're sort of taught and enculturated to believe that it's about knowing. Right. The end point is knowing. What if the end point is unknowing? and untangling things. Um, and then the communality of that, right? Like to be able to do it with others so that we don't feel alone. Right. For me, the excitement of just this Mystic Soul Project idea and even this podcast idea is we can, like just the idea of creating a space that I haven't found at least where we can do that, right? Yeah. We can have these conversations where we can unpack these questions and say, we're not sure, but this is what we're doing right now, you know, to try to figure <laughs> it out. so far. Right, exactly. <laughs> that it's not. That's certain. It's just like share the journey and then other, you know, and, and that's been so enriching to me along the way. It's just to, because we're so siloed from each other so often in this yeah. culture, to just find space where we can be together, hear other people ask questions that maybe we've been asking and then not feel alone. Yes. Mm. So thank you. And um, we will see everyone on the next podcast. You just heard a conversation between Anna Jelsi, Ra, and Teresa from the Mystic Soul Project. You can learn more at mysticsoulproject.com. Download the corresponding practice about reclaiming our names to learn an activity from Ana Jelsi Velasco Sanchez that helps a group really lean into the resource of their stories, complexifying our understanding of our own ancestry and lineage, and building relationship by sharing with one another. As always, you can support the podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash healingjustice. And especially in these next couple weeks, we hope that you will support our joint effort with our friends at Tonic Podcast to bring a delegation of healing justice media makers to the Allied Media Conference in Detroit. If you can make a donation to our travel fund, you can find that fundraiser link at gofundme.com slash hjamc just like healing justice allied media conference so that's gofundme.com slash hjamc you can stay in touch with us by joining our email list at healingjustice.org and also finding us on instagram facebook and twitter Uh, We share some pretty beautiful memes of powerful quotes from our guests every single day on Instagram. So check us out there at Healing Justice. And big, big thanks to Blake Chastain of Exvangelical Podcast for editing this episode, as well as the faithful mixing and production work of Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thanks, y'all, for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. And we'll hear you back next week. Bye.